Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 118, The Son of God 2, Mr. Danny Andre Dixon's Aryan View of Jesus. Mr. Danny Andre Dixon holds a bachelor's and a master's degree in Bible from Abilene Christian University and a master's in education from Grand Canyon University. He has served as a pulpit minister, a college minister, and a youth minister in Churches of Christ, and he currently teaches high school English language arts in Fort Stockton, Texas. He's also studying to practice law, but he's here today to talk about his contributions to the book, The Son of God, Three Views of the Identity of Jesus. Mr. Dixon argues for and defends what is called an Aryan view. Mr. Dixon, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you, Dale. Mr. Dixon, your position in the book has been termed Aryan. Is this because you formed your views by studying the work of the 4th century presbyter Arius? No. It's not because I studied the work of Arius. I am and have been aware of the work of Arius ever since my college days back at Abilene Christian and Graduate School, taking patristic Greek from Dr. Everett Ferguson. We read excerpts from different church fathers and heretics as well. So I've been aware of who Arius was, but I never formulated my views by studying his point of view. I should also say that whenever we were trying to come up with a title for the book, we were trying to figure out how to designate the distinction between one another. And so we decided that one would be called a Trinitarian, one would be called a Socinian, and one would be called an Arian, or at least an Arian view, a Trinitarian view, a Socinian view. Mr. Dixon, how have your views about Jesus evolved throughout the course of your life, and how do they now differ from the views of most conservative Christians? Well, if we're talking about what my views of Jesus are relative to this topic, I would say that I have had a transition of of understanding from the earliest time when I first began thinking about it, which probably would have been middle school or junior high school, I was always a little confused about the word Trinity, what it meant. God was supposed to be three, but God was supposed to be one. And for a kid in junior high school in the seventh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade to try and work all that out was kind of confusing. I, I know that at the beginning, I probably held something that would be a little more similar to a Mormon view. Ah, there's a, a three-seated throne there in heaven, and the Father sits in one part of it, the Son sits in another part of it, and the Holy Spirit sits in another part of it. So I really kind of had a three-God kind of view that seemed to just be satisfactory for a while, and then that didn't work too well once I began to, to really think about it. But over time, I began to read more deeply in my denomination. Well, I I guess the Church of Christ doesn't like to call itself a denomination. In my religious group, the Church of Christ, not much had been written or spoken about this in its history, at least in the United States. But in the mid-70s, a fellow by the name of Roy Lanier Sr. wrote a book called The Timeless Trinity. And I believe he wrote that book basically to 
probably refute Pentecostals and Jehovah's Witnesses and whatnot, even Mormons. But he wrote this book. I got a hold of it. He even sent me an autographed copy, as I recall. And that's when I very first began thinking seriously about it. It didn't take much to convince me, since here was a logical, rational explanation of things presented in that book. And I didn't think about believing anything different through a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, a number of years of ministry, even ministry in a a congregation out in California in 1994-95, at which point I met someone who put me in contact with a book by Anthony Buzzard, The Doctrine of the Trinity, Christianity's Self-Inflicted Wound. Now, that's a very engaging title for a book, but at any rate, it took me a while to read it. And ultimately speaking, I pretty much embraced some of the ideas that were in that book because they seemed very biblical and logically arranged. But in due time, I dropped some of the views that were endemic to the Socinian angle that that book presented, probably in in a little bit of conflict with my church where I was working at the time in Fort Worth, Texas, I wanted to study this thing out to the nth degree and come to a conclusion for myself. I probably came in contact with other writings of different people here and there, even in the Churches of Christ. I think of a man by the name of Barton W. Stone, who ended up having views much like the ones that I have now. It was an interesting revelation to find out that such a view had even been held in Churches of Christ, which was the church of my choice and in, in understanding as being what I wanted to follow. But over time, I came to the views that I had now, but only within the last, say, 12 years. As to how my views differ or are similar to that of most evangelical Christians, I would say that the difference lies in who I say Jesus is, not in the authority honor, worship that I have of what he is. While I don't believe that Jesus is God the Son, I do believe that in being the Son of God, I am bound to absolutely adore, worship, laud, respect, obey, and follow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, and I'm 100% committed to that. So if you were to walk around me, be around me at any given point in time, so long as we didn't discuss my doctrinal views, I probably wouldn't look any differently than other evangelical Christians that you might see me with. So as far as your spiritual life and your own discipleship, that's more or less been continuous through this whole process of theological reflection. Yes, I've never wavered from that. Mr. Dixon, in the book, through the course of the arguments, it's clear that you think that there was a time, a finite time ago, when Jesus didn't exist. Why is it that you don't accept the claim that goes back at least as far as origin, that in some mysterious manner, God the Father eternally generates the Son, so there never was a time when the Son didn't exist? First of all, I don't even think a phrase like eternal generation even makes any sense generating of a son or a daughter is a point in time 
um, matter of fact. Even if one is discussing it from a spiritual point of view, I believe that would be true. Jesus says in John chapter 5, chapter 6, also that the Father gave him life. Um, Lee does make an attempt to refute what I'm saying in my argumentation there. But even so, I believe that the fact that he was given life means that he had a beginning. And in that sense, he could not be eternally generated. Nobody can be eternally generated. Now, I've read Origen's writings in, on this, and I've even paid a little bit of attention to how Augustine and others have tried to work out that kind of language. But to me, they seem to just be creating terminology for some kind of presupposed view. Now, maybe I shouldn't say that because I would want people to give me a fair shake in honesty for my beliefs, and so I'll say that they had sincerity in their beliefs, but to me, it just doesn't square with the bigger, broader set of evidence of the Scripture. So you don't see it taught in the Bible, this eternal generation? No, not at all. But also you're worried about whether it makes any sense, too. Correct. That's not to say that we're supposed to understand everything. I think about Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to God. The things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, which suggests that there are mysteries, granted. But I believe that there are also revealed matters that if a person gives diligence with the scriptures, correctly handles the word of truth, studies sincerely, honestly, prayerfully, that one can come to conclusions that do actually have a sense of rationality to them. That everything that Christians believe doesn't have to be a mystery, and it doesn't have to be something beyond one's ability to understand. And that's not to say that I understand God Almighty perfectly, or His Son perfectly, but it does mean that one can have a um, cohesive understanding of doctrinal points of view that make logical, rational sense. And eternal generation, to me, doesn't seem to make any sense at all. So I would probably say it's nonsense. So someone might ask you, Mr. Dixon, would you accept eternal generation if you saw it clearly taught in Scripture? Yes, I would. I believe that what I'm supposed to do is to believe what God has revealed. And um, if that means that I'll end up being at odds with someone, well, let God be true and every man a liar. So, yeah, I would switch if I thought the Scriptures taught that. But it just doesn't seem to teach that to me, at least at present. Mr. Dixon, in your chapter, you spend a lot of time discussing some ancient books that actually didn't make it into the Bible, but your dispute with your co-authors is really about the interpretation of the New Testament. 
How, in your view, are the books First Enoch, The Apocalypse of Abraham, and 11Q13 from the Dead Sea Scrolls, how are those relevant to interpreting what the New Testament says about Jesus? It was very important to me when writing this book to have a clear understanding of Jewish people's understanding of things at the time that Jesus lived and taught, or very close to that period of time, which is often called Second Temple uh, Judaism. Those portions of non-canonical writings that you mentioned all mention the existence of, I guess you could call them intermediary personages. Some of those people mentioned, they have roles and responsibilities and prerogatives that take on what most of us would consider elements of deity. They forgive sins. They judge people. They hold positions that we typically think are held only by God. And so one would want to understand, well, if there were writings like that back then, weren't those people being stoned and executed for for blasphemy at the time? And the fact of the matter is that they weren't. They were considered positive writings, useful writings. They weren't considered scripture or anything like that. But the wording of these writings and the language seems to suggest that one could be an intermediary figure and be given titles, names, duties, responsibilities as intermediary figures, some seated at the right hand of God uh, or at the uh, next to God, without at all being guilty of blasphemy. Now, is that an absolute argument? Was it blasphemy? Well, I'm sure it could have been, but the concept was not generally recognized or written about as being blasphemous. Now, that in and of itself is not an argument, and I did not intend it to be an argument. I only intended it to be evidence that if a person speaks of Jesus in similar terms, there would not be a necessity in the mind of people at the time that he was blaspheming to do things like forgive sins in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 8, or to be a person to whom one could pray. For instance, Jesus says, ask me anything and I will give it or I'll, and I will do it. Or that he could be someone who could be uh, worshipped, as I do believe maybe some passages in, in the book of Revelation might indicate. Not to mention that there are a host of occasions throughout the Gospels where um, we find that people came and uh, bowed down before him, the Greek word being proskuneo, and um, some people want to exclusively make that word be a word of worship. I don't think it is, but people do, and I'm just saying that Jesus shouldn't be considered, if one embraces my view, one shouldn't think that I'm saying that he is blaspheming. People like the Son of Man mentioned in First Enoch would not be considered a person who was a blasphemer simply because he happened to hold these roles and responsibilities. Therefore, whenever we consider Jesus doing 
similar things, we shouldn't think that he is blaspheming either. Now, he does end up being accused of that, but not for the same sorts of reasons, and maybe we'll get into that shortly. So uh, my argument is a biblical argument. I mentioned those writings simply to say that to speak of individuals in such terms is not something that would have been considered shocking at the time. So you're trying to establish the kind of cultural, intellectual context. You're looking at writings also from Second Temple Jewish monotheism from around either the first century AD or the first century BC. And you're saying, well, in their minds, a human or an angel might be given the divine name or might serve as the judge of humanity or even receive some kind of religious honor, maybe even worship. And so when they attributed these things to Jesus, they wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that he was divine in the same way that God is divine. Right. They shouldn't have. Things that Jesus did and things that he said and dispositions that he received were not considered blasphemous of people in their literature, and consequently, they shouldn't have been conceived as blasphemous whenever they were applied to him. Now, just briefly, why isn't everybody moved by this argument? I mean, how do people like Dr. Irons reply to this type of point? Well, Lee's first statement in the book is to say, well, who cares? And he says it pretty much about like that. I think he's hearing me say that these writings are authoritative in some sense. I don't think he should hear me as doing that. I'm doing the same thing that he would do in exercising a, a problem in exegesis, which he is extremely capable of doing. I've read his writings. He would be careful to say, well, how is language used at that time in history? What are words that are used by the people of the day, and how is that same kind of language, when it's found in a biblical text, to be understood? And he would probably say that, for the most part, such terminology um, would be parallel. I don't know why he would have a problem with me saying that much, because I'm not suggesting at all that those writings have biblical authority or have the same authority as scripture does. I'm just trying to deal with language and situations. I cannot read another person's mind to see why what I'm saying in that area is not a reasonable approach to understanding uh, biblical things, particularly as they would have been understood by people who could go down to the local place wherever they picked up scrolls to read and see the same types of things in their casual religious reading from day to day. I thought that at one point Dr. Irons was objecting, as I think maybe Dr. Richard Bauckham would object, that the cases aren't really parallel, that there's something different about the cases of Melchizedek or the angel Yahuel, where that they wouldn't imply those texts that they belong to the divine identity, but there's something different about the Jesus case where it does imply that he belongs, as they say, to the divine identity. But it wasn't clear to me what the difference was exactly. Well, it wasn't clear to me either. And I tried to pick apart 
the inconsistencies that um, Dr. Balcom had in the way that he made his arguments, of course, Lee embraces what Balcom says, at least on that point, it seems implicitly. I suppose one would have to read the particular arguments honestly, sincerely, and then make a decision. Is Jesus any different than these writers? And it is true that um, in um, Balcom's book, he tries to make an argument. It just doesn't seem that he is consistent in his argumentation. I try and point that out. Lee does make arguments in response to mine in which he doesn't seem to feel that I have uh, done a good job in drawing the conclusions that I draw. But sometimes I think his statements equated with affirmation rather than substance. I say that with great caution because I believe Lee to be a very good scholar. But we were writing a debate, and maybe in debates that you're writing, you don't concede anything until later. I don't know. I had nothing to concede when I was writing. (laughs) Mr. Dixon, in your view, the New Testament teaches that God created the world through Jesus so that while God is the ultimate source of the cosmos, it was the pre-human Jesus who, as it were, got his hands dirty doing the creating. Some have objected that Jesus is nowhere quoted as taking credit for creating the cosmos, and that arguably the synoptic gospels don't teach his pre-human existence, or that he created. And in response to the chapter by Dr. Irons, you list nine elements of the gospel as preached by the apostles in the book of Acts, And these don't proclaim the pre-existence of Jesus or portray him as the direct creator. Do you think that only John and Paul taught that Jesus was the creator? Well, let me say this. Even if John and Paul were the only ones that said it, John is an inspired apostle and Paul is an inspired apostle. It doesn't matter that Jesus doesn't say something. It's true. He doesn't say that he is the creator of everything. John says he was in John 1, the first few verses. And you noted that Paul says he did. I believe that it was probably Lee, Dr. Irons, who makes the point that the synoptic gospels do speak of Jesus' preexistence. It wasn't an argument that I made in my own presentations. I was happy that Dr. Irons made that point for me, and we share points, as it's also true that Dr. Smith and I share points. So I'm the guy in the middle that gets to benefit from the other, the guys on either side of me. But um, I don't think anyone can say with any accuracy that Paul doesn't flat out say that Jesus created the world, Colossians 1, 15 and following. Um, created the ages, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and following, in various places there in the first chapter of Hebrews. So I accept Scripture as I would hope any evangelical believer would, and most evangelical believers would agree with Dr. Irons and I that Jesus is the one through whom the world and the ages and everything was created. The problem uh, is a problem in the mind of Dr. Smith from the Socinian perspective. 
So, in your view, the pre-existence and that Jesus was creator is taught in the letters of Paul, and those would be from the 50s and early 60s. And then they're taught in the book of John, which would be probably in the 90s. But then they wouldn't be taught those things in the Synoptic Gospels and in Acts, which are, we assume, from 60s, 70s, 80s. So it's kind of strange, I think, that Paul is teaching it, but it's those things, but they're not taught in Acts, but then they are taught in John. I guess this is a reason why biblical Unitarians like Dr. Smith, who don't believe in pre-existence or that Jesus was creator, I guess it's a reason why they want to find see if there's another interpretation for those handful of texts that we're talking about. Well, it would be nice if they would present some reasonable other explanations for those texts. Now, I haven't heard any yet. I don't think that you're suggesting that just because a book is written at this time as opposed to that time that that a passage of scripture is any less the word of God given its dating. Of course, that is a number one um, liberal point of view. And I suppose if uh, biblical Unitarians want to embrace that as one of their forms of reasoning, the later a book is, the less likely it is to have come from God. Well, that's fine. I don't make that kind of argument. I believe that that the purposes of each of the writings where the statements are made are sufficient to indicate why Paul would say what he says in Colossians 1. He's trying to exalt Christ. Uh, why he would say what he said, well, whoever wrote Hebrews would say what he said in the first few verses of Hebrews. The writer is trying to establish the superiority of Jesus over angels, prophets, and great men that they knew. And for him to use the language that he uses is quite appropriate for the context of what he's talking about. In that sense, I would say that my argumentation would be equivalent to that of the evangelical world. I'm certain that Dr. Uh, Irons didn't have any problem with um, my saying things like that. I guess that was one of the portions of the book where both of us sort of ganged up on Dr. Smith. Uh, and and there's, a, there's one other point that, that ought to be made. I think people would do well to pick up a copy of John A.T. Robinson's book, Redating the New Testament. He makes good arguments for why all of the books could be considered as having been written prior to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., I'm not going to say that, that I need that as an argument, but it can be argued. But my basic argument is that within the context of the writings of any one of the authors, be it John or Paul, the purpose of the author is to establish what he wants to establish. And in Colossians, he needs to make the point that Jesus is superior to all the uh, false teachers that were around at the time and um, to say that he is a superior figure in biblical history in the book of Hebrews. And uh, consequently, he is the uh, creator of the ion, the ages, as he uh, describes it there in the first chapter of Hebrews. So to me, that's not a problem. I've done my study on why I accept the New Testament as being the absolute inspired word of God. 
I'm willing to make those arguments in another debate if someone wants to, you know, question that in the minds of the people in readership. I wasn't mean to cast aspersions on John or the synoptics as having been written later than Paul. It was just that if they did believe these writers that Jesus preexisted and created the cosmos, you would think that it would be part of the message. I mean, it's a stupendous thing for a man to have created the cosmos. And you would think that would give him a kind of honor and uh, rights as creator, but you don't see it being preached in Acts. You did mention Acts, and I, I failed to mention that in my response. Even in my own analysis of the book of Acts, I do not mention that per se. Mm -hmm. Now, I would point out that in Acts chapter 17, if I'm not mistaken, Paul talks about God being the ruler over all and uh, placing people where he's placed people. And, mm -hmm. and, then he, and then he ends up the sermon by saying that um, uh, everybody's going to be judged through the one that God has appointed, namely Jesus the Messiah. Now, I would have to say that even there we've got, as part of the message, the concept of God basically running the big show in a sermon that's talking about Jesus being the means by, by which the salvation of all men everywhere must come to repentance. And um, having said that, I would say that there is a connection, at least indirectly, that Jesus is God's agent. Whereas Paul is supposed to be preaching that sermon in Acts chapter 17. It certainly doesn't contradict anything that he says in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, if in fact Paul is representing that Jesus is God's agent through which he accomplishes a lot of things, salvation being the primary purpose to discuss things in the book of Acts, his um, intermediary agency to be a creator in the epistles of Paul and the writing writings of the person who wrote the book of Hebrews. So your point is that these books don't contradict those two claims, and I guess you accept uh, the arguments by Simon Gathercole that maybe the synoptics presuppose preexistence because Jesus says, I have come. Someone could possibly look at those passages and not draw that conclusion as to its meaning. That the point of the synoptic writers is not necessarily to make a statement about the preexistence of Jesus. And I didn't think that the argument was strong enough to proactively make the argument myself. I was willing to let Lee make it and let Dr. Smith refute it, but he doesn't refute it very well, not as I recall the, in reading back over the, the debate. Speaking of Dr. Smith, Mr. Dixon, he makes the following objection, which is, what about Isaiah forty four twenty four? In that verse, Yahweh says, I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. And in your view, you agree with Dr. Smith that this is the Father speaking. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. 
How would you address this passage? Doesn't it present a difficulty for your view? The only way that it would present a difficulty for my view would be if there were no concept of agency revealed in the scripture. The concept of agency is very early in the scripture. It's as early as Moses speaking to God at the burning bush, speaking in the first person. Yet, if you read in Acts chapter 7, we see that the person really speaking at the bush is not God Almighty, but an angel. The point is that God speaks through people, but by giving that person the authority, that person can speak in the first person as if he is God himself. I did in the book give an illustration in the New Testament of the same thing. In the pericope there in Matthew chapter 8, around verses 5 through 13, there's a presentation of a centurion as having personally come to Jesus, um, asking Jesus to heal his um, servant. Jesus agrees to come. The centurion responds by saying that he's not worthy of Jesus going to his home, and Jesus merely speaking the healing would be enough. Jesus sends the centurion back. The servant's healed. Now, that's in Matthew we have the centurion actually coming. Well, we've got the synoptic uh, parallel to that in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, and the centurion never personally comes to speak with Jesus. Rather, he sends the Jewish elders in Luke chapter 7 and verse 3 to represent him. And this, of course, encourages Jesus personally to perform the, the healing that he wanted wanted to happen. Well, my point is that we've got one passage saying that the centurion himself is speaking. We have another biblical writer saying, recording the same incident, that it was the Jewish elders that were there and not the centurion at all. Again, we have very clearly laid out in the scripture, not only here but other places, where anyone that is sent with authority he is empowered to speak as the one who sent him. So when I read Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24, and um, Yahweh saying, I made the earth all by myself, I'm not in any difficulty at all to compare that with um, Hebrews chapter 1, where the Lord, who is easily referred to as Jesus in context, given the uh, quotation from the Septuagint translation, is the one who actually, by his hands, did God's work. God, through the mediatorial agency of Jesus, creates the universe. Earlier you mentioned the, uh, the, the concept that Jesus dirtied his hands to do this. Um, I know that, um, that in um, uh, ancient Gnostic writings, the concept of God dirtying his hands would not have been something that he would do. He would send an emanation out to do it. Well, I don't want anybody to think that I'm trying to say that Jesus is an emanation of God. I'm saying that he is God's agent. Given the privilege of acting on God's behalf, but it is God himself who ultimately is the cause of this happening. So while Dr. Smith may consider that uh, a problem on my part, 
I guess he would have to say that any passage that indicates agency would have to be questioned just as well, which would um, cause difficulties for anyone, for instance, as I mentioned, who would read a pericope saying one thing and the same instance saying the complete opposite of it must be a contradiction in Scripture? Well, I don't think that one has to go that far or make that big of a jump. If a person acts on behalf of one with authority, who gives that person authority to go and act in his behalf, then that person can be said to be the one that did it, even though it was his agent who actually did the nuts and bolts of it. Mr. Dixon, how would you answer the objection that on your Christology, Jesus is essentially an angel or a lesser deity who then comes to inhabit a human body? But of course, the book of Hebrews teaches that Jesus is not an angel, but is greater than any angel. I received a little bit of criticism from Dr. Smith in the book on this point. Uh, I can't recall if it was through a private conversation or it was in the writing of the book itself. But um, he asked me, well, what was Jesus? And I said, well, I don't know what he was, except to say that I know based on the verse that you just mentioned or the, uh, the book that you just mentioned, Hebrews, that he was not an angel. To which of the angels did God ever say blah, blah, blah? And of course, he never did say that to an angel, but he did say it to Jesus. Mr. Dixon, in studying the second century, I've read a lot of Justin Martyr, and he believes that Jesus pre-existed, and indeed that God created the world through him. And all interpreters that I've read think that Justin Martyr assumes that there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. And so he's in a very similar position, that Jesus came into existence sometime prior to creation, and he actually calls Jesus a second God. What about that answer? Would that be an acceptable answer? No, <laughs> that would not be an acceptable answer because that sort of a statement almost seems to suggest that the second God is equal to the first God. And therefore we've got a binatarian type of situation. Not that a binatarian situation in and of itself is to be rejected without consideration, but I believe if one considers the scripture, we read that God creates entities. Some of them are called angels and are also called Elohim or they're called uh, Theoi. They are gods or divine entities. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, Jesus is a divine entity but that doesn't necessarily make him have to be an angel. Jesus is presented in Scripture as being 
the monogenes, the one and only Son of God. I know that this passage is um, used by, or is understood by Lee in a paper that he wrote, The Eternal Generation of the Sun, which is on his um, upper-register.com blog, where he argues that this should best be understood as translated the only begotten Son of God. But the fact is that the term that's used for Jesus as being the the monogenes of God, this same word is used, for instance, of Isaac, Abraham's monogenes son. But we know that Abraham had two sons, at least. One of them, Ishmael, who was the firstborn, and then later, Isaac, who is the son of promise. He wasn't the only begotten son of Abraham. He was the unique, special son of Abraham. And in that sense, I can see easily how Jesus is the special, unique son of God, not a begotten son of God, not an angel, not any less than what God wanted him to be than himself. Jesus is the um, one and only unique Son of God. Now, and it's not only I who would um, would make a, a view, uh, make this con- this conclusion. The scholars who write the Net Bible come to the same conclusion. A lot of other scholars um, come to this this same conclusion. The Greek English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, um, the latest edition of the Arndt and Gingrich. A lexicon lists unique, one of a kind as being definitions for monogenes. Mm-hmm. Dr. Irons um, makes an argument to make it be only begotten, but then he would have to do that to keep his eternal generation point of view. Of course, I'm sure he would say to me that I would have to keep my Jesus being the unique, only Son of God to maintain my view. He quotes scholars. I quote lexicons and scholars, which um, brings up, I guess, another uh, point of difficulty anytime someone does theological study. You've got the dueling scholars game going on, like your dueling banjos. Well, which scholar are you going to go with? Well, it's not just a matter of scholars. They make their respective arguments. Obviously, we don't have time during this um, presentation to um, go over the arguments that Dr. Irons quotes, nor the examples and uh, scholars that are referenced by Arndt, Gingrich, and Donker in the um, standard lexicon and other standard lexicons or even the, uh, the citations by Moulton and Milligan in the, the standard uh, concordance of um, literature that uh, existed in and around that time. And not to mention the usage of monogenes throughout the New Testament in various places, not many, but various places, where the word clearly means unique or only Son of God. I don't know what Jesus was, but I don't have any reservation in saying that. I started earlier by saying some things are revealed and some things are not. That's not a problem for an honest biblical student. 
a person says just as much as what a person can say with authority. I have Jesus being unique. I have Jesus not being an angel. I have Jesus not being Almighty God. All three of those statements are compatible with no difficulty causing me to lose sleep at night. Will I continue to study these things? Of course. Do I feel a necessity of taking a hard line and judging somebody else if they don't agree with me? Of course not. I can see how a person can read the scriptures and come up with the conclusions that uh, Dr. Smith has come up with in a Socinian biblical Unitarian point of view. I have a little more difficulty seeing how one can hold to the uh, Trinitarian point of view, but I know that I myself held to that view at one point in time, and so I can see how a person can do, do that as well. In neither case do I conclude that this is a matter of salvation, that if a person does not embrace the more or less Arian point of view, he has to suffer the wrath of God, nor do I see any clearly stated, fully accurately translated passage that says that unless one believes that Jesus is the great I am, that he is doomed. We do have a, a scripture that says, unless you believe that I am, the Greek phrase is ego eimi, translated in, in some translations that way, you will die in your sins. But also am very cognizant of scholars in Greek grammars who say that when you have that phrase, ego eimi, standing in isolation, what it means is I am the person of the context, either that's being discussed here in the last few verses or in the last couple of chapters. And of course, in John chapter 8, where that appears, I see that as Jesus saying, unless you believe that I am the Messiah, you will die in your sins. And of course, some of the modern translations render that, unless you believe that I am the one I claim to be, you will die in your sins rather than making Ego Me be the name of Almighty God. Mr. Dixon, how would you answer objections like this, that in order for Jesus to fully reveal God and in order for him to atone for the sins of all humanity, Jesus must be the ontological son of God. That is, he must have the divine nature and so be ontologically equal to the Father. I would have to say, show me a scripture that says that. I don't know of any scriptures that say that or even that imply that. I can hear a person wanting to say, well, given the grave and the great nature of sin that exists in the world, only a God could die and pay the atoning sacrifice. Well, again, there's no scripture that says that. And the alternative to how that could be 
is simply that God decreed that if the sinless Son of God did live as the perfect example and sacrifice, then his uh, death on the cross would be sufficient. That's the evidence of the Scripture without any explanation. And again, why do we have to have an explanation for everything? If it's there, we should embrace it. But it's certainly not there just because of an affirmation. Mr. Dixon, thank you for talking with us. Well, it was a flat-out pleasure, and um, maybe we'll do this again sometime on something else. I hope so. Today's thinking music has been Worky Worky by Andy G. Cohen. You can hear or download that entire track at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Before we go, I wanted to share a new review we just received in the U.S. iTunes store. It's a five-star review, and the headline is A Balanced Bite. It's by S. Edwin Rufiner, who says, There are lots of voices out there, and as postmoderns we live in a time when it can feel as though one could drown in the ocean of information available. Who and what is to be trusted? This is particularly true when it comes to the discussion of religion and theology. Often what makes it needlessly difficult for those not intimately acquainted with specific disciplines of scholarship and issues at hand is the hostile dialogue between schools of thought. Dale Tuggy, host of the Trinity's podcast, has proven himself to be a bastion of honor, meekness, and objective inquiry in the podcasting universe. Refreshingly, his guests and interviewees are given uninterrupted time, with the exception of an occasional clarification, to fully develop a premise, followed by the concise questions of Dr. Tuggy. Dr. Tuggy's content is fresh, explorative, interesting, and informative find myself time and again completing an episode with a contented and balanced bite of intricate topics. For those interested in calm, collected, and concise theological dialogue and everything that comes with it, you will not regret tuning in. Thank you for that review. That was very kind. If you'd like to leave a review for the podcast on the iTunes store in your country, you can find instructions for how to do that at trinities.org review. Doing this will help other people to find the podcast. And along that same line, if you enjoy these episodes, don't forget to share them on social media. Next week, the third and final interview in this series, Dr. Dustin Smith of Atlanta Bible College, who defends the Socinian view of Jesus. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Until next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.